Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get right to our next guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, as well as amongst lots of other things she does. And folks, I recommend you follow Danielle on social. She's got a really strong social media game. And the people she follows, I now follow and vice versa. So helps me get a little bit smarter on what's going on out there. Danielle, uh, thanks so much for taking the time here on Christmas Eve Eve. What is your outlook for this market going into 2022? We've got Omicron, we've got a rising interest rate environment, a lot of cross currents out there. Can you kind of just give us a sense of what we should be thinking about for next year? Well, I think markets uh, rightly have moved on from Omicron, at least for the moment. It does not seem to have disrupted uh, whether you're talking about travel or services consumption. We, we saw come in very hot this morning. Um, but it, it, there is something to be said also for all of the goods purchases that have been pulled forward in 2021 and the fact that we will not be having any more fiscal impulse going into the first quarter. So that concerns me. We did see the, the, the weakest goods consumption that we've seen in, in well over a year. So the, the, these things raise red flags when we are a consumption-driven economy and you're seeing goods consumption contract and that's at a nominal, nominal level. That's not even adjusted for inflation. Danielle, uh, I want to really stick with that topic of consumption here and, and follow up on a story that's about a year and a half old as I'm looking at my byline. I worked with a, a collaborated with story with Liz McCormick who quoted you uh, talking about essentially the savings rate, which was likened at one point to what you saw in the Great Depression, this idea that in this kind of pandemic era, a lot of people were holding on to those savings at a rate that you didn't even see uh, when there was that kind of Depression era austerity. I want to ask you about how the savings rate is dropping and what the impact of that on consumption is, and then by extension, the broader economy. That's a, you know, that's a fantastic question. We're back down to 2017 levels on, on the savings rate, as we saw in this morning's data, and that is problematic, especially when you layer on top of that the fact that we know, due to New York Federal Reserve data, that the bulk of the savings that do survive, that have survived, uh, are in the hands of those between 65 and, and, and older, as, as well as those who are the wealthiest, who have the least propensity to use their savings. So again, this, this fiscal cliff idea is critical as we head into the new year. January 15th is gonna mark the first month that Americans don't receive $550 on average in child tax credit in cash. And some of them are going to have to pay some of that back uh, when the IRS opens up the, um, its, its window to submit tax returns on January the 31st. So a lot of, a lot of interesting um, events occurring in that first month of this year. So given that backdrop, Danielle, we've got some pretty clear uh, guidance from this Federal Reserve as to how they're thinking about their tapering and, and uh, the rate structure. Do you think the Federal Reserve is getting it right? Or is that narrative that maybe they're still behind the market? Is that still there? Well, you can't start out from behind and not still be behind. So, I mean, unless they, <laughs> unless they were to come out at the end of June, excuse me, the end of January, their next meeting, which yep. is the last week of January, and say, you know what, the taper's over. We're, we're finished with it. 
Um, but they could certainly, and we'll, we'll listen to Fed Talk. There was a fantastic article on the terminal about Christopher Waller, and I recommend everybody read that article because he is a different-sounding Federal Reserve governor. And, of course, governors have permanent votes. We haven't seen a governor dissent since 2005, and he seems dead set on that March 17th launch date for the first rate hike. So, you know, will they get there? Will the, will the yield curve win? We'll find out. I mean, there are some people who are saying this yield curve is compressing and behaving almost like mid to late cycle. Yeah. So we will see if the yield curve races to the finish line and because and, the Fed cannot increase interest rates if the yield curve is inverted. It's just <clears throat> there's nothing in the rule book that, that, that would allow for that. So three rate hikes in 2022, that is the message we have gotten from the Fed. Something to keep in mind is since then, we've had several emerging market countries continue to hike and hike and hike. The Czech Republic, I believe, is the most recent. Um, and we don't need a, another reminder of what's going on with Turkey, of course, going in the opposite direction. Danielle, I really want to ask you what the bond market is really thinking here, because it kind of seems like when you're looking at pricing, there are pricing in not just steeper hikes, but kind of this kind of knee-jerk stop-start reaction, this idea that the Fed might actually uh, need to do something and then wait and see and then do it again. What is your thought process on the bond market's take? So, I mean, <clears throat> the Czech Republic overnight uh, raised interest rates by 100 basis points. We were expecting 75. And we're seeing some very aggressive behavior, again, to your point, outside of Turkey, where everything's cray-cray. But we're seeing a very aggressive emerging market. They have to defend their currencies right now. Um, so the question is one of how does the Fed react? And should the Fed be reacting or should the Fed be disciplined in its approach? Maintain that, that pace. Maintain the stability that markets are expecting. Uh, again, I, I go back to the yield curve and the fact that other areas of the economy are pulling that long end down. We can't seem to get past that, that 1.50 ceiling on the tenure or it, it feels like an interim ceiling. So I go back to how aggressive the Fed can be, given what the bond market is dictating right now. Hey, Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time today. We always appreciate getting your perspective, your views, particularly here this time of year as we think about next year. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's a CEO and chief strategist at Quill Intelligence, uh, also a former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Well, one of the... I guess economic oddities, at least for me, from this pandemic has been what some are calling the great resignation. People just leaving the workforce. I don't really have a great answer why, but maybe our next guest will and give us a sense of how things are working out in the labor market. Raul Villar, CEO of Paycor. Paycor is a public company, went public this year, trades on the NASDAQ, PYCR. It's got a market cap of $5.2 billion. Uh, Raul, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, your company creates human capital management software to help recruit and onboard employees, as well as other people management tools. Do you have a sense, given your history with your customers, your clients, where these people went, the great resignation? Yeah, so I think that there's, there's two dynamics. Um, that are happening. First and foremost, you know, since the pandemic, um, you know, we're still not back to uh, the overall labor market. It hasn't come back to where it was pre-COVID. Uh, and so there's two things that are going on. Um, there's less supply in the market, which makes, you know, each individual job um, <clears throat> in more demand. And so people are really reevaluating. People are talking about the great resignation but from our perspective, it's a reevaluation where people are thinking about their current job and, hey, do I really want that job? And is it offering me you know, the right leadership 
the right benefits, the right pay package. And so we're seeing shortages in some of the industries that we all you know, work with every day, whether it be retail or food and beverage or hospitality. Um, we're seeing significant worker shortages in all of those industries because you know, people are reevaluating their future and they're deciding to do other things. Yeah, while well, this is going to be a crucial piece of the equation going into 2022, we're looking at a quit rate that's just shy 3%, according to the latest JOLTS data, the highest in history uh, that the data goes back to. I really want to talk about here why we're actually not necessarily seeing this hit uh, some of those retailers and hospitality figures because they are still trying to hire. They are still seeing those shortages, but somehow those businesses are still operating. Can you connect those dots for us? Yeah, I, I think, you know, clearly um, the retailers and hospitalities are still operating. I think they're operating less effectively than before. I think we're all waiting a little longer in lines, you know, at retailers or um, waiting a little longer uh, to have dinner, um, those type of things. But um, what's happened is it's forced um, retailers and restaurants um, to try new things to attract employees, whether that's flexible work schedules, whether that's you know, on-demand pay, the ability to get um, their pay, you know, uh, instead of on a weekly basis or bi-weekly basis, can I get my pay on-demand uh, to help pay with my bills? And, and offering, you know, better flexibility and better benefits across the board. So I think you're seeing the cost to employees increasing for retail and uh, hospitality. Uh, and so that's become, you know, the next issue for, you know, those industries is is the overall cost, which we're then seeing pushed back onto the consumer. Paul, I don't know if you've ordered food like takeout to your house lately, but right. I certainly have because I'm a horrible cook. But uh, <laughs> one of the main issues for me has been having these very delayed deliveries. And this is such a first world problem. I'm right. going to complain about it on the air anyway. But a lot of it tends to be because of simply a shortage yep. of food delivery people and drivers, for example. So let me ask you here about just the effect here on the gig economy, on the folks that don't necessarily have a salary job. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're seeing, again, um, you see shortages on, on food. I think we've also all seen a change in behavior with Uber and Lyft than, you know, pre-pandemic uh, and the ability to get an on-time ride. Uh, and so I think, you know, people are definitely um, moving into gig jobs, and we're still seeing that acceleration. I don't think it's happening at the rate that's required to service the demand shift for either delivery or Uber or Lyft or the type of services that gig supports. And so we're seeing the same type of shortages there overall, um, whether it be, you know, the traditional employment economy or the gig economy. We're, we're facing the same labor issues uh, across the board. Raul, uh, Critty and I, we are in the Bloomberg headquarters office today, um, but we're lonely. Are, are people going to come back to the office? So, uh, like, you know, our perspective is that um, we're going to continue to see a mixed environment, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, we're, we're probably, you know, a little overcorrected right now. We're the majority of the people working from home. I think, you know, over the next you know, six to 12 months, we'll see more of a mix, uh, some return to work, maybe not five days a week. Um, you know, at Paycor, as an example, you know, we have a virtual first philosophy um, and we enable, you know, our employees to work from home or flex into an office in a hoteling type concept. And I think we're going to see more of that, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, I think, 
you know, when we, you know, survey our client base, yep. we survey our own employees, people are saying we want flexibility. Yep, that's what we're um, hearing. But we also want the connectivity of being in the office and being with our coworkers and yep. and doing things for the community and those type of things. Yeah, it's interesting to see how this is going to develop. Raul Villar, CEO of Paycor. It's a NASDAQ-listed uh, uh, stock, PYCR. I don't know about you, Critty, but I still go to the grocery store. Do you go to the grocery store or do you get your groceries delivered? I do go to the grocery store, and let me tell you, it is the worst part of my day. See, I... that's why a lot of people, more and more people are getting their groceries delivered, and our next uh, guest certainly is in the middle of that. Shay Wong, CEO and co-founder of Boxed, uh, symbol B-O-X-D on the New York Stock Exchange, joins us here. Shay, thanks so much for taking the time here. First of all, just give us a 30,000 view of your company uh, and also, I think you guys recently came public via a SPAC. Give us uh, the details there. Yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty wild year, Paul. So um, we're Box, as you mentioned. B O X E D is the company name, but B O X D is our symbol on the New York Stock Exchange. So we started eight and a half years ago, shipping bulk consumables to consumers and businesses. So we still do that today, but we also sell the technology, including the hardware and all the software that powers that e-commerce business via a software and services business as well. So all of that is what we do today uh, here at Box. Well, we got to start talking about your the issues <laughs> that, that are, of course, kind of hurting a lot of companies across the board. I want to know the ones that are affecting yours, primarily when we're talking about inventory, because I'm just looking at your website here. It looks like you guys deliver things in bulk, which must mean there are inventory and storage costs involved. Talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we right now are mostly a first party uh, merchandiser. So meaning we take inventory of the item and we sell that item to consumers all around the country. Um, to Paul's question before, uh, the challenges of 2020 and the opportunities of 2021 are the real reason why we went via SPAC. And so um, when you look at our business, traditionally 25% of our business pre-COVID was B2B. And so, Krita, you can imagine that, you know, as folks stopped going into the office, as, you know, schools shut down, uh, that was very hurtful for our B2B business last year, to say the least. Um, but as, a, as the economy, economy opened up a bit, as we're beginning to live with COVID, uh, we're seeing a rebound there and showing the world what that looks like two, three, four, five years into the future was something we could do by going public via SPAC. So give us a sense here. I mean, we're hearing from a lot of different businesses throughout the economy the challenges of the supply chain bottlenecks out there. How is that impacting your business? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is the, I mean, it is the biggest issue afflicting almost the entire planet uh, uh, today when it comes to business. Um, so the good thing for Boxed is that because we sell consumables and because of overt decisions we made years ago with our private brand, uh, almost everything you would buy on Boxed when it comes to the consumable products are actually made in the U.S., um, so when you see those boats lined yep. up off the kind of ports all around the world, that doesn't affect us as much. But I have to say the shortage of, of labor supply, um, that certainly affects us via last mile. And so as our last mile partners start to um, you know, have delays or begin to raise rates because of that shortage in labor, um, you know, that will, uh, uh, of course, affect us as well as affect everyone across the entire industry. Let's talk about who your consumer is here. Uh, I and I'm. Paul, I guess, lives in the suburbs like a cool right. person. Uh, I, I uh, live in the city here in a very small studio, I might add, with a puppy who is adorable. But um, what I really want to ask you here is what 
is the difference in your consumer base? Because if you're talking about essentially bulk deliveries, I don't know if I have room in my studio to put that. So I'm curious uh, because I'm looking at some notes here and you're, you're headquartered essentially in New York City. Your fulfillment centers are across the country in Dallas, by the way, which I might add I am from. So talk to us about the kind of uh, separation or the divergence between, say, those city dwellers versus those uh, the country folks that are not in New York City. That's such a great question, and the reason why I was laughing is because, you know, I, I would imagine if we went back in time uh, and, you know, in the big toilet paper crunch of 2020 and I showed up with <laughs> 4,000 exactly rolls of toilet paper to your apartment. About. Yeah, I was, I'm sure even though you're in a studio, I'm sure you'd be like, all right, we're going to Tetris this into my uh, apartment somehow. Um, but, um, you know, joking aside, kind of what we see and what shocked a lot of folks when we did our road show was that, um, at our last read uh, of our demographic, almost 70% of that audience um, uh, surveyed is either in uh, kind of deep suburbs or in rural America. Uh, and so these are folks that don't live within a 30, 60, 90-minute drive of a local warehouse club. So previous to us, uh, they were largely shut out of, of stocking up and mm -hmm. saving uh, by doing so. Interesting. So, so who do you really compete against day-to-day, uh, -day, and how's that maybe changed during the pandemic? Yeah, so what you really kind of see from some of the data that we've, we've um, uh, been shown is that, um, you know, we get pitted against Costco, BJ's, and Sam's Club uh, a lot. But, you know, when you, when you hear kind of what I just said before about like almost 70% don't live close to one of those clubs, you actually start to see kind of some of the data we've had access to. You start to see some overlap in the Venn diagram with um, uh, traditional supermarkets, dollar stores, um, uh, and traditional chains like that that you would otherwise – have only have access to if you live in a small town. So one of the big, you just mentioned Costco, one of the big divergences between, or differences, I should say, between, say, Costco or your average Walmart, for, for example, is product selection. Costco doesn't have as big of a product selection as, say, your Walmart does, which has multiple, multiple options. Where on that scale do you fall in terms of the things that you offer to consumers? So that is something that we've really, really tried to hone over time. So we started off, you know, almost eight and a half years ago with just 200 products for sale. Uh, we're up to closer to 3,000 these days. Um, your typical, you know, warehouse club will have, you know, between three to 5,000 items. Your typical supermarket will have closer to 100,000. And, you know, your typical superstore will have way above that. Um, but, you know, where we want to take it and kind of what we set out in our uh, original um, investor presentation and analyst day was that, we're going to take the money that we raised, close to $200 million, and actually grow assortment because I think there's uh, definitely some pockets um, of inventory where our customers are saying, hey, you know, I already buy $100 worth of stuff for you, from you on an average shop. If you only had X, Y, and Z, I would have thrown it in the basket, but you didn't carry it. So that's a real opportunity for us in the coming years. So talk to us about this use of capital. Again, um, broadening your, your selection of, of goods, what other drivers are you looking for for your business? Yeah, so, you know, what I, we, it's, it's funny because, you know, yesterday we rang the bell at the stock exchange. We immediately came back to the office and got right back to work with the management uh, uh, offsite or onsite offsite. Um, and what we talked about was basically making that original investor presentation come true. We want to be a management team that says, here was what we presented to you, and this is exactly what we delivered. And so to the question, Paul, it was three main levers in B2C. One was growing our brand uh, because, you know, it's – decently well-known in New York City. But, you know, when you go across the country, you know, unaided awareness is still rather low uh, for Boxed. Uh, so marketing investment. Two is increase of assortment. So whether it's healthy and organics or 
baby or other products that we're not very strong in, that's definitely uh, yeah. another lever. And then the third is um, uh, some of the subscription and loyalty programs that we have to increase retention. So those are the three levers that we're going to pull this year. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate learning about the story there. Well, despite this Omicron variant, what I'm going to be busy doing this weekend is booking some ski trips for this winter and spring. A couple of my faves I'm looking at are Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe. It's now been renamed Palisades Tahoe. We'll leave that for another time in discussion. Also looking at another favorite Steamboat Springs out in Colorado. And guess what? We're going to talk to the guy who actually runs all that stuff. Rusty Gregory, Chief Executive Officer for Altera Mountain Company. Rusty, I'm booking my trips. I'm looking. Uh, I'm not letting Omicron kind of slow me down. What's your view of this ski season? Well, you know, uh, we're very optimistic. Uh, much better shape than we were uh, last year when there was a, uh, a lot of unknowns about uh, the pandemic this year, less so. And uh and weather is hitting uh, the west with a vengeance. I'm actually sitting at Mammoth Mountain. It snowed three feet overnight, and that wow. storm is on its way to Utah and to Colorado. So very excited. Uh, Rusty, I want to ask you about just kind of the next five years. Pretty, are, are, you, are you a skier? Let me just I'm not to, a skier. You're not a skier. So I have a... A different All right, so maybe I'm, I'm going to work on that, Rusty. See if I can get uh, pretty on the slopes. We'll have to do a little uh, a little field trip yes. out to Colorado. Happy to help with that. Well, I want to ask you about the next five years here. Let's say there are more variants. Let's say there is uh, more of these kind of COVID issues where it does require perhaps staying at home, working from home for a few weeks at a time as you start to see cases kind of ebb and flow. What is the take from, I'm going to say the skiing industry, I won't just leave it to you, but the skiing industry on how to deal with something like that? Well, COVID has created a tremendous amount of uh, disruption for everybody. It's very difficult to look out two weeks, uh, much more than five years. But the idea of people working at home and uh, being a bit more in charge of exactly how they work, when they work, where they work, uh, I think fits in nicely to skiing in general. Many people have moved to ski resorts, and uh, those uh, those are those people are on Zoom calls at the resorts themselves and uh, at their homes, and it also gives them more flexibility during the midweek. Uh, on one hand, when you're working at home, you're often called on to work at all sorts of odd hours. On the other hand, you have uh, you have time off that you didn't have before when everybody was going to the same parking garage and the same office, office cubicle. So, our uh, business during the midweek during the pandemic has been up considerably. And, uh, you know, people uh, figure out a way to do the things that they need to do and the things they love to do. And skiing is one of those things. Outdoor sport, something you can do with others uh, safely. And, it, uh, you know, I think it can uh, deal with a disruption like uh, most of the rest of our economy over time. Rusty, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the weather map now and, the, you know, the West Coast is just getting dumped with snow and, and rain, depending upon where, where you are. So hopefully that'll help out our good friends in California with the drought. But talk to us about climate change and how that's impacting your business. A lot of folks are concerned about there just won't be as much snow or as good snow. How do you guys think about that? And, you know, including snow making, I guess. Well, we are uh, a bit the canary in the coal mine. Uh, you know, we we are dependent on weather and uh you know we really sell the joy of mother nature and that's uh that's very important for us so it's a concern for us and something uh that's uh, very important for us to play a leading role in terms of environmental responsibility from a business standpoint 
part of the answer to that is uh, to have a large portfolio of assets that allows us to distribute our weather risk uh, over various regions globally, and uh, and also to offer our guests a product that allows them to hedge their risk uh, to the extent that weather uh, is not as good and snow is not as plentiful in the area that they typically go in on the Icon Pass. They can go to any one of our uh, our 48 resorts and uh, and enjoy themselves. So. You know, it's something that none of us exactly know what's going to happen, but weather is more volatile than it was. And in this case, uh, it's brought a tremendous amount of snow to the West, and people will be enjoying that, enjoying that here in the uh, in the days and weeks to come. Rusty, how are your bookings looking forward for this season? And, and, and kind of how has the, the restricted international travel affected your business? You know, it's uh, yet to be determined exactly what international travel is going to do this year. I'm sure that we'll be down in our resorts that are more dependent on destination uh, uh, travel uh, overseas, from overseas. But here, uh, domestically, our bookings uh, are incredibly strong. Uh, The most I've been in the business, I hate to tell your listeners how old I am, but well over 40 years and i've never seen this much demand ever people want to break out of their houses and their downstairs basements away from their zoom calls and get outside and and they're certainly uh booking up for uh, this winter in very very strong fashion how about inflation here are you guys actually i really want to talk about labor because you know when i get on the ski lift often it's an international person helping me get on the ski lift and lots of international labor outside the u.s talk to us about your labor situation you know, uh, like all the rest of the businesses in the in the U.S., labor has been very difficult to uh, to find, um, and uh, you know, correctly so. Wages are higher, much higher than they have been in the past. We've been uh, fortunate; we've filled up uh, to somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of our uh, our staffing rosters at each one of our resorts, and so we're starting off the season in very good shape. And uh, well, our, our big concern is to uh, to keep them healthy. And to keep them, uh, you know, at uh, work in a way that's comfortable for them, socially distanced enough so that they can come back each day wearing masks, wear appropriate indoors. And uh, so right now we're looking good on the labor side and we'll see where uh, where things go this winter. But it's, uh, you know, the ski industry is a person to person business and yep. uh, we rely on our people on the front lines and uh, they do a great job. Yep, they absolutely do. All right, Rusty, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Rusty Gregory, Chief Executive Officer for Altera Mountain Company. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.